Amen. You guys can have a seat for just a few minutes. In addition to just welcoming everyone here, we, we definitely want to welcome the Haiti team back. We're just excited that they can be, be with us again, that they're back uh, safe and sound. And we look forward to, uh, in, in uh, upcoming weeks and very soon, to be hearing a little bit more details and exciting uh, stories from their adventure down there. So, so we're just thankful for that. A few more announcements. Uh, this Friday night, I'm going to put in a plug for, for any junior hires. We're going to be doing a fun activity uh, here at Creekside. So if you're in junior high, 6th through 8th grade, from 6 to 9, we're going to be having a little road rally event. So if you're interested in that, uh, come talk to me afterwards. If you weren't there on Wednesday night, kind of gave a little more information to the junior hires that were there. But this Friday night... Another thing going on Friday night is uh, the Willowbrook Men's Retreat. Willowbrook Men's Retreat. If you're interested in that, I want you to talk to Tom Baird. Tom Baird's in the back row. Tom, raise your hand. That's Friday night. So there's more information in your bulletin on these things and some other things. Um, Another reminder for this week is that there are no activities on Wednesday night. So uh, this is a chance for people to build goodwill in their communities. There's going to be a lot of opportunities to engage our neighbors, to talk to our neighbors. People are out about in your neighborhood. And, and so this is an opportunity to build goodwill, as we talked about recently, and uh, really reach out to our, our neighbors. So think of creative ways that you can engage your neighbors, talk to your neighbors uh, this Wednesday night. I know the temperatures are getting colder. Uh, the season is definitely changing. There could be some snow this week. Some of you guys are excited about that. Others, like me, are definitely uh, dreading it. And a week from today, our clocks are changing too. So don't forget next week, turn your cl- fall back. So we're going to sing one more song. But before we do that, I just I want to uh, just take a moment to, to read some, some scripture together. Just listen to this to these words from Psalm 19. Psalm 19, in verse 7, it says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Just that phrase, that the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. And, uh, you know, we get, that's why we get together every week, to, to praise God, to lift him up, to remember that he's first. And also just to hear God's word, because God's word has reviving properties, okay? God's word, um, when it falls on our hearts, it, it has a, a way of just renewing us and reminding us all over again of how awesome and how great God is. So um, just take a moment to bow your head um, and, then, uh, and then to sing this next song together as we just proclaim God's goodness before we hear his word. Father, how we thank you for Jesus. Um, Lord, in the midst of a world that is full of so much chaos and confusion, uh, Jesus is our calm. Jesus is our center. Jesus is the one um, who renews us with, his, with, with the word. 
And so we just bow our heads. We, we confess our um, distractions and how easily um, focused we can, we can become on other things. But right now, Lord, you, we ask for your spirit to help just lift our gaze to heaven, prepare our hearts to receive your word, to just be encouraged in and revived once again. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. just want to uh, say one thing as far as the Haiti team. Uh, that is, I, I mentioned this in the first service, maybe I shouldn't, but I'm, I'm going to encourage you when you see members of the Haiti team or if you, to talk to them, when you ask them um, something, just get, give them a, an out by asking them one thing. Say, what was one highlight of your trip? What was one big challenge? What's one thing I can pray for you about? What's one, as Norb said in the first, what's one glory moment, one really cool thing that you would like to share with me right now? When you do this after the service, okay? So, because they're like full and ready to just kind of gush. So if you just say, well, how was your trip? Uh, You better be ready for... Uh, an onslaught of information coming your way, okay? Because they're, they're just juiced up about what happened, you know, and God was working. So, and for the Haiti team, what I'd encourage you all to do is in the next week, find somebody that you can dump on, okay? Uh, just find somebody that's willing to just say, can you just, do you have like an hour that, that I can just talk? And I'm, I'm not joking, I'm serious, because this is for your spiritual health. Uh, because other people around you are going to look at you weird. You know, because you're talking Haitian now. You're talking Creole. And you're going to go up and say, bonsoir. And, oh, and come away. And, and they're going to go, what planner are you on? You know, I mean, this is like America now. Did you realize that you came back? You know? But you're excited. And that's cool. That's good. Uh, so anyhow, you just find somebody that's just willing to, you know, love you enough to just listen and, uh, and, just, and just pray with you, okay? Let's pray. Father, uh, thank you so much for uh, your love for us. And uh, I thank you that you are holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And the whole earth is full of your glory. And Father, we're feeble and frail and, and most as... Chuck Swindoll says, most apt to fail um, in this life. And I just pray that you would use your word and it would be that reviving, restoring influence in our lives. And Father, I pray that as we look at your word, as we study it, that we would submit our own self to it. For your glory and the gain of your kingdom, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. There was a recent uh, Pew research study that came out, and it was entitled, The U.S., and it says, Decline of Christianity Continues at a Rapid Pace. And the Pew Research study found that uh, over the last decade, the number of people who call themselves Christian, who identify as Christians, now that doesn't mean they're all Christians, okay, but they identify as Christians, has decreased 12%. But the number of people who are not affiliated, that would be atheists and agnostics and uh, 
those who have no religious affiliation, has increased 17%. That's in 10 years. Okay, that's in 10 years. And it seems to me that these statistics help explain why we're witnessing the secularization of America at such a rapid pace. And when I say secularization, it means moving away from the biblical standards of principles and morality and those kinds of things. And we're moving away. The moral landscape of America is changing. Rapidly and and increasingly, we're reflecting a deterioration of biblical morality in in our country. And a major manifestation, I think a major manifestation, major illustration of this moral decay is the assault on the traditional perspectives of gender, sexuality, of marriage, of singleness, what the Bible has to say about those things. You see, the intentionality and the intensity, and I say those, I chose those words carefully, uh, with which the moral revolutionaries are militantly pushing their values on society, I think necessitates that we take a step back and look at what the Bible has to say about these issues and consider what God's word has to say, if we are going to, if the word of the Lord is really going to revive our soul, if the word of God is going to guide our lives, then we need to understand what it says in regard to these things. So, uh, our preaching team several months ago realized this was happening, and so we got together and we decided we would do a series to address these issues and talk about what does the Bible say about gender? What does the Bible say about our sexual identity? What does the Bible say about marriage? What does it say about singleness? And so for the next several weeks, that's the path, that's the plan, that's the process that we're going to proceed down so we can hopefully unpack these things. And our goal, folks, is to set the record straight. And I, not with hate but with help and hope through the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I invite you, if you would, to take your Bibles and and open to 1 Corinthians. Uh, We're going to be in chapter 6 right now. And I want to look this morning. I'm starting it off. I'm going to be gone next week. We're going to, Marlon and I are going to be gone on vacation, so we won't be here. And so the next couple of weeks, uh, one of the other elders is going to be picking up the, the slack. They're going to be leading the process and leading the way on marriage and those issues and uh, roles in marriage. But I, I got to start it off. And we're going to look this morning at three important steps in responding to the moral revolution with help and hope. Okay. And when I say moral revolution, I'm talking about the, the, particularly with regard to these issues of sexuality, gender, and, and marriage. The, the moral revolution is pressing the envelope on all kinds of other moral issues, but these are the ones we're going to talk about. And so uh, the first step to take, I think, is that we need to examine what's going on in the culture. I'm going to read 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm going to begin, or 1 Corinthians 6, I'm sorry. And I'm going to begin with uh, verse 8. On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud and that your brethren. Or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. 
But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. And the first thing is, as we examine our culture is that I read this text and I say clearly what's being promoted by our culture is in direct contrast to the Scripture. Directly contrary to what God's Word has to say with regard to biblical morality. Now, it's not the only thing in the text. I'm not trying to ignore the fact that there are a lot of other things that are contrary to God's Word, but particularly the issues in our, our moral, the moral climate are against God's Word. So three considerations. First of all, I want to take some specific examples of what I'm talking about when I talk about the moral revolution. What am I, what am I talking about? Well, I want you to look at this tweet that came out on Twitter. Uh, this happened this past week in Texas. And the it text says that a jury rules against a Texas dad trying to save his seven-year-old son from gender transition and potential castration. So that jury ruled 11 to 12 that the father could not and is not allowed to speak to his son, James, with masculine pronouns. He has to use feminine pronouns and call James uh, she because his mother is talking and has told the boy since he was three he's a girl. Okay? So that's one example. Second one is Robert Rachel McKinnon, who's a biological male, recently won a women's cycling world championship. So this is a trans person who won a women's cycling championship. And the time that this person turned in in the cycling championship would never have qualified that person to compete in the men's race of comparatively. Just an example. The third example is in April of 2019, a 61-year-old grandmother gave birth to her own grandchild... The 61-year-old gave birth to her own grandchild for her son and his husband. Okay. So grandma gets in vitro, plant, uh, in vitro fertilization from the, her grandson's husband and carries the child and gives birth. Okay. So that's what we're talking about. And I could have gone, I, I mean, I had a list of, you know, like this long of things, recent stuff. That's been happening in, in the culture, you know. And so I could have spent a lot of time on that, but I'm not going to. So those are some examples of what I mean by the cultural revolution and what I see as the perversion of biblical truth and biblical standards. Then a few strategies that the moral revolutionaries use. What, what are the people who are pushing this agenda? How do they do that in our culture? Well, Marshall Kirk and Hunter Madsen, gay activists, state this. Almost all behavior begins to look normal if you are exposed to enough of it at close quarters and among your acquaintances. All behavior begins to look normal if you are exposed to enough of it at close quarters and in, among your acquaintances. And so, if you watch TV, or you listen to the radio, or you, you know, Hollywood, the media, 
in academia, it's not an accident that when we dropped my daughter off for her going into the dorm room that there was only one, one and only one statement and uh, like a sandwich board sign advertising a gathering on campus. Only one. And it had to do with the moral revolution. It was join the, uh, come and, and see what's going on at our LGBTQ plus uh, gathering. This is the, the push that we're getting. And now in the courts, jury, Texas. This is not, you know, Netherlands or Australia or somewhere. This is in, in America. Rules that a, a dad can't call his son, son. God's grieved, in my opinion, by these, and I'll say this, and I'm saying it, delusions of reality, of what God has intended for people. And these are treated as normal and good. They control the narrative. Proponents of uh, these sorts of things, these perversions, are portrayed as virtuous victims And anybody who says anything contrary to this is seen as a a hateful person. Hateful. Which is, I hope to understand and let you know is not true. See, the California legislature, uh, they basically stated it this way, that those holding to a biblical understanding of gender, sexuality, and marriage, and I quote, caused disproportionately high rates of suicide, attempted suicide, depression, rejection, and isolation amongst LGBTQ plus and questioning individuals. The California legislature said that Christians are responsible for higher rates of suicide, suicide attempts, depression, which is absolutely unsubstantiated statement. I mean, there are studies done across a way that say that the um, overseas that these kinds of manifestations are present regardless of where the person is. And so I want to look at finally the significance of the moral revolution. Why should we care that this is happening in our culture? Why should we even care what's going on? Well, because marriage and family, as we know it, are threatened. It's a danger. Marriage is defined by God is a building block for society, for a sane, a safe, and stable society. And that's for all people. God's word and God's truth is not just for Christians. Natural law applies to all people. And when we start to erode the truths that God set up for all people, we undermine the basis of our society for all people. I'm, not, I'm just going to ask you, where, where, and this thought comes to my mind, I may not be right, where does it end? Where do we stop with the confusion and the redefinitions of marriage? And I know this is not far-fetched because it's already being somewhat discussed. When do we start to defend an adult person who self-identifies as a youth-attracted individual 
and who abuses young people. Because, I mean, now we call that pedophilia. But if you redefine it enough, you can change the entire course of the discussion. Um, You think then religious liberty is threatened in England. uh, Don't know if you've read this, but Dr. Dr. Macarith was fired. He's a medical doctor, 30 years in the medical field, practicing medicine, was hired by the England public health system, and there was a a man in his, um, he was taking care of this man, six-foot man with a full beard, and the doctor refused to call him a her. Said he didn't refer to this person as a she, and he was fired. And the judge said this, and I quote, the judge ruled that Christianity is not protected by the Equality Act. He refused to do it based on biology, and he refused to do it based upon his understanding of Genesis 1. Okay? It's not protected by the Equality Act unless it is a version of Christianity which recognizes transgenderism and rejects a belief in Genesis 1.27. I don't know if you knew this, but the U.S. House of Representatives has passed a similar Equality Act law. It hasn't been passed in the Senate, but it's been passed in the U.S. House. Marriage and family is threatened. Religious liberty is threatened. And the other reason we care is because we have the only, re- only, only message of hope in the world for people. And not just these people, all people. All of us are sinners. All of us make mistakes. All of us fall short of the glory of God. And we have the only message of hope. Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. I think we have that, if we have it on our screen. Yeah. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And you shall find rest, or you shall find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus invites all people, enslaved, misguided by perspectives of the culture or perspectives of their own thinking, he invites us. He invites all sinners, homosexuals, gender confused, same-sex attracted, opposite-sex attracted, transgender, any sinner who are hurting who are hungry for love, who are hopeless, apart from the redemptive power of Christ, he invites us to come and to find life and help and hope, to be made right with God through our personal trust or our faith in what Christ has done. That's what God offers. So that's the, the culture. Then we must, I think, embrace what the Bible says about these issues, which is the most important thing, actually, regardless of what I think, what the Bible says, I invite you to Genesis chapter 1, where I'm going to go to Genesis 1.27, because I don't know a version of Christianity that is true to Christianity that throws out Genesis 1.27. Genesis 1.26 through 28. 
Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image and in, his, and in the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the every living thing that moves on the earth. And then I want you to look at verse 31. And God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. It was very good. Three kinds of identity I want to talk about. First of all, our human identity. What does it mean to be a human being? The text says in Genesis 1.26 that God created man in his own image. And that is the distinction that is oftentimes being lost too. I don't know if you heard this last week. Uh, there are lawyers in New York that are advocating for uh, Happy the Elephant to have human rights because Happy has been uh, put into the Bronx Zoo for a long time and evidently Happy is not happy and so Happy is a person and happy, Happy's personhood needs to be acknowledged. At least that goes the argument. But God's word says that man has been created with an eternal soul which makes us every human being, every single human being, of significance and value, supremely of significance and value, regardless of their location, whether they're in the womb or outside the womb, regardless of their race, regardless of their ethnicity, regardless of their education, regardless of their mental capacity, Every human being is of value to God. God calls us to a behavior that's consistent with his character. And each of us is responsible for that behavior. By nature and choice, the Bible says we choose to rebel against God. That's every one of us. David said, in sin did my mother conceive me. I was a sinner by nature, and then once I'm born and start to act, I'm a sinner by choice. I make choices to rebel against God. And the result of that, what I deserve from that, is separation from God. But God in his love sent Jesus so that all who would trust in him and turn from their sin would be forgiven. That's the message of hope. And every person who accepts that, for by grace you have been saved through faith, everyone who knows John 3.16 and believes it in their heart that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Christians care about everybody. That's why I say I don't want a human being in the womb to be, their life to be taken. That's why I don't want anybody to be unnecessarily, cruelly treated. No, that's not what Christianity is. We prioritize the value. We defend the unborn. And I desire every person who is living a life of sin to turn from their sin and be delivered from God's judgment. So that's why we speak the truth. That's why we know that we have been, I'm no different, <laughs> I'm just a sinner saved by grace. My sins may not be the same as your sins. Some of them are the same as your sins. But I've been saved by grace. And so you can be too. Our sexual identity. That's our human identity. Our sexual identity. Genesis 1.27. 
And God created man in his own image, and in the image of God he created them, male and female he created them. There's two grounds, biblically, for which we determine our sexual identity. The first is biological. Our biological identity is either male or female. That's what God's Word says, okay? And when the Scripture talks about male and female, it's referring to it from a biological perspective, and so I think we should consider it from a biological perspective. It's not the only perspective, but primarily from a biological perspective. But the moral revolutionaries that I've been talking about want to dismiss the biological as a basis for our sexual identity. One feminist argued this, she said, although many people think that men and women are the natural expression of a genetic blueprint, gender is a product of human thought and culture, a social construction that creates the true nature of all individuals. I don't know if you got that. The contrast is that some people say that we're genetically fashioned and that's our, our sexual identity. But the revolution says that gender is a product of human thought and culture, a social construction that creates the true nature of all individuals. What I believe doesn't change what is objectively true. To think My kids might have thought that they were a bird. But I didn't let them crawl up on the top of the steeple at the church and try to fly. And I use that example and you say, well, that's a really stupid example. Well, they don't, they're not, they're not, that's not who they are. And so it, it, it is irrational, delusional to think that we are something that we are objectively not. God's word talks about men and women. And men and women, now this is men and women are created equal in the eyes of God. So that male nor female, neither one is intrinsically superior to the other. We're both equal as created beings before God. But we differ in many ways. It is absolutely objectively true that every one of us, our genetic code is imprinted from the moment of conception. We are either male or female. That's a genetic fact. Physiologically, the differences between men and women have been scientifically proven beyond question. With a greater bone density with greater muscle mass, more lung capacity, and more red blood cells, men, males, are on a whole, on average, bigger, stronger, faster than women. That's why a trans woman, who is actually a biological male, wins the World Cycling Championship among the women. And he couldn't even make the cut on a world-class scale against men. Biologically, it's true. Women, mentally, they're, they're, they're just like more tuned in on social scales, social activities, 
nonverbal cues. That's why when Marla and I go to a, an event, even in our small group or we're at a church event or function, Marla will walk around. She'll talk to the same people I talk to. And she'll go, did you know that so-and-so, they are, they're really struggling emotionally. I, did, you, did you see? They, they're about ready to cry. And I'm going, no. Oh, that was all good. I'm kind of clueless. Now, again, this is on average. Some guys are more clued into that stuff than, than other guys are. Mentally, the, 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 the structure of the, the male brain and the function of the brain typically makes guys better at math and science and reasoning. Women, on the other hand, are better at language. They have a greater vocabulary. They learn foreign languages better than men. These are just physiological. Our brains work different. There, there is structural stuff that connects the brain one side to the other that's different in men and women. Now, again, that, those differences are more pronounced in some guys and gals than they are in other guys and gals. So these are, but it's generally true. Isn't it, I, I just think it's so sad that instead of celebrating these differences, Instead of delighting in them, we're supposed to, we're trying to demean them. We're trying to dismiss them. It is a good thing if you are a female. It is a good thing if you are a male. And God said so. In Genesis 1.31, it was very good. It was very good. God didn't mess up. Psychologically, there are differences between men and women. And I think the psychological differences and the, the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3 impacts and has an influence on what we're seeing today, psychologically. You see, God created men originally. Created. You read Genesis 1 and read, read it. Who, who was created first? The man was created first. Men are created to lead. Men are created to protect. Men are created to nourish. Men are created to initiate. But then the fall of man. The sin, sin enters into the world. And, and what happens as a result of that? Men start avoiding their responsibility. Men start abdicating their responsibility. We don't like to make decisions. That's why, you know, some of these guys, guys were like, well, we're afraid to, to say we're going to go out to eat here. Or we're going to do this. We're going to, well, what if, what if she doesn't like that? Well, just decide. You know, where do you want to go? I don't know where you want to go. I don't know where you want to go. I don't know, I don't know where you want to go. Just you know, pull up your big boy pants and decide. You know, that's how God made us. Is to make. But because of the fall, we, we fall back. And then sometimes we get to the point, and, and because of the fall, I believe, we say, I don't even want to be a guy. Because it's too scary. It's too threatening. It's too, or else we become some jerk. You know, just, that's the way it is, woman. You know, well, that's not right either. That's, that's, that's sin. Amen. Women, women were initially created to nurture and to serve and to follow and to care. This is Genesis 2. Mark's going to get there next week. But in Genesis 2, the woman is the helpmate, the helper, the one comes alongside to follow and serve and care for. But because of the fall, you can see it in Genesis 3, I don't have time to go into it, the woman becomes domineering and dominating and emasculating. So it says in Genesis 3, 
I didn't use those words, but that's, you know. She shall desire her husband, but she'll want to control him. Her desire will be for her husband. She's wanting to, and or just like, I don't want to be a gal. I know there's lots of women who just like, oh, I wish I wasn't a gal. And, and you know, in the culture and society enforces that. Some of you have dads who didn't want a daughter. And they made that known. And that's very painful. That's not your fault. That's not God's fault. That's the fault of living in a fallen world and it messes our heads up and it makes us afraid to be who we really were created by God to be. That doesn't change what God wants to do in our lives. Every discontentment with, distancing from, denial of, or direct action to alter our sexual identity is a form of defiance against the holy God who created us the way he created us. It should prompt with us, within us genuine sympathy and true compassionate care for those who are struggling. And you know what? A lot of us struggle. A lot of us have struggled with it, these issues. And some of us still do. So we need sympathy. We need compassion. We need care. We need encouragement with, the, with each other. What's our spiritual identity? In Galatians chapter 3, if you want to turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3, you see Galatians chapter 3 verse 28, uh, there, is a, there is an identity that trumps all of them for the child of God. That through faith in Christ, Galatians chapter 3 verse 28, Paul says this. Paul says this. There is neither Jew nor Greek, Okay, so there's ethnicity is out of the way. Okay, doesn't matter what race you are or what ethnicity you are. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. Social economic class doesn't matter. There is neither male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. Through faith in Jesus Christ, the believer has a spiritual identity that trumps every other identity. And it's within that spiritual identity that we fully live out and can most fully live out our sexual identity and human identity. Because that's how God made us to be. Only through faith in Christ are we reunited with God and have the power over sin and the power over the penalty of sin so that we can live out who we are supposed to be in Jesus. Now that's the Bible talking. That's not, I'm not just saying that. I, I don't think that's what the Bible has to say. Finally, we don't just examine what's going on in the culture. We don't just try to embrace what the Bible says. But we try to exercise our biblical responsibility. What is our responsibility from the Bible's standpoint? It was Edmund Burke, I believe it's Sir Edmund Burke, who was credited with declaring the only way for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. So we have at least two responsibilities. We're supposed to promote purity. We're supposed to promote what the Bible has to say. Colossians chapter 2, uh, verse 8. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Says that we're not to be taken captive by every philosophy and vain deceit after the traditions of men and not after Christ. Okay, I can't promote purity if I'm engaging and believing falsehood. That's my point. If I embrace what's not true, I can't promote biblical purity if I'm embracing cultural perversity. I 
I must accept it. And the book, The Truth About Same-Sex Marriage, Erwin Lutzer writes this, The Christian faith, rightly lived, has always collided with politics and popular culture. So what are we supposed to do? I'm going to give some suggestions. First of all, I think we need to speak out. We need to speak about these issues. Boldly and compassionately. Not like jerks. Not without being sensitive. Because I understand. You guys maybe think I live in some bubble. But I would bet that almost everyone here is impacted either directly or indirectly by these issues. Because we have people in our family, maybe it's us personally, maybe it's some influence from our, our, our job where we're having to deal with this. We speak out. The Bible says speak the truth in love. Even when the truth is in conflict with the culture. So, here we go. Glenn Davies. He's Archbishop of the Anglican Church in Sydney, Australia. He's like the top religious guy of the Anglican Church in Australia. And here is what he was saying to the people gathered, his religious leaders. He said this. He called upon the church not to abandon the clear teaching of scriptures on the issues that we've been talking about. We can't turn away from the truth, but we speak the truth and we seek to do so in love. You see, gender, sex, and marriage, in marriage particularly, is supposed to be a reflection of Christ's relationship with his church. And so it matters what we say. Any activity, sexual activity, any deviation from, from God's plan, deviation from the relationship between one man and one woman is sin. It violates God's plan. You can drive the wrong way down a one-way street for a long time. But it's not a good idea. We can go the wrong way as a culture. But it, it's, not, it's not going to end well. I'll go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. These sins, not just the sexual sins, but all these sins. And this is an illustrative list. It's not an exhaustive list. So any sin here. Puts us on a crash course, a collision course with God. And so we must call attention to it. Why? Just because we want to point our finger down at people and say, you have this problem? No. Because we want them to know that they have a problem so that if, they, if, if I have a problem that separates me from God, I want to know it. It's not a hateful thing. It's a loving thing to tell people that they're going to burn. And I don't want them to die apart from God. I care about their soul. And so, we set an example. We have to set an example. We have to be people who are living morally pure. Okay? We have to be people who live rightly before God. You know, okay, are we hypocrites? Yeah, we are. I mean, we, we, we don't always live out the fully extent of our sanctification and our, our identity in Christ, but we're seeking to live in accordance with what God's word says. That's what we're supposed to do. So we have to abandon immorality. We have our sanctified sins, you know. We have to abandon. I mean, in the church of Jesus Christ, you've got adultery, you've got pornography, you've got all kinds of sin, and we can't just single out people who are, uh, you know, sinning differently than me. And say, that's what's wrong. we got to change that. 
No, I got to live purely and rightly. And we must acknowledge, this is Colossians chapter 3. In Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, Paul says, Since then you have been raised up with Christ. Keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And then he says, you must turn away from impurity and passion and evil desires and greed, which amounts to idolatry. So those are things that we have to turn away from. And then believers, we have to acknowledge our real identity in Christ. And try to grapple with it's okay, who I am, and, and, and to understand what God wants me to be in union with Christ. I, I have a concern in the culture that in the church of Jesus Christ, we've gotten to the point where we start to accept, to identify, or to, to name ourselves, identify ourselves based upon our sin. There's a prominent person who claims to be, uh, uh, says they're a, a gay Christian. Now, I mean, the struggle I have with that is I don't think we should identify ourselves by our sins, which we're supposed to be putting to death through the power of Christ transforming us. I don't say I'm a kleptomaniac Christian. Oh, I'm a greedy Christian, you know. I'm a, and you fill in the blank, Christian. No. I am a Christian who struggles with that, you know, or like one Ron Sitlow, who's a pastor of a church in, uh, out east, he says that he calls same-sex attracted. He says, I struggle. You know, people here, you know, other people struggle with opposite-sex attraction. But you don't say, I'm an opposite-sex attracted Christian. And so, I'm not, again, I'm not trying to make light of that, but what I'm saying is I don't think we should be, I don't see it biblical to identify ourselves by the sins that we're supposed to be putting to death by the power of God. This is Galatians chapter 5. The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. But what is the sins of the flesh? No, the, the two are opposite. If I'm walking in the Spirit, then I'm putting to death the deeds of the flesh. Now, it doesn't mean I've already done it. doesn't mean I'm, I'm complete in that. But we're supposed to pure, promote purity by these things, by getting away from that. We're supposed to show love consistently. And do we fail? Yeah, we do. We do. But Jesus calls us, love your neighbor as yourself. Okay? So we're supposed to love our neighbors. I, uh, if you haven't, you read this book by Rosaria Butterfield, the, the Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. It's a great book. This pastor, she was the professor of women's studies at Syracuse University. And she had written an article and she got a bunch of scathing emails from people just excoriating her on you know, how evil and wicked and terrible she was. She got one letter from a pastor who said, you know what, I'm just curious of when you came to these thoughts and how you came to these thoughts. And I'd like to talk to you and, and find out, you know, what, what you're thinking. And so she responded. She called him and he invited her over and she came over and had lunch with he and, her hus and his husband, or his wife, I'm sorry. And uh, they talked and they shared. And they built a relationship and Rosarita Butterfield came to faith in Christ. And now she's married with a family and and uh, speaks openly about the conversion that she had because of what Christ, the transforming power of Christ in her life because somebody loved her enough 
not to isolate and insulate her from it. We're supposed to seek God passionately. You know what? Second uh, Chronicles 14, you can write this down. But in 2 Chronicles 14, Asa is going up against the Ethiopians and there's a million-man army that's coming against him. And he prays to God and he says, God, who are we? <laughs> you know, we are helpless against this army. And I'm thinking, you know what? It is a spiritual battle that we're waging. And Paul said in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Against principalities and rulers, against the spiritual forces of darkness in this present in this present darkness. So we should be praying that God would work in our hearts and in the hearts of other people because we don't want to see people lost. And then we, we're called not only to promote purity, but to proclaim liberty. I said before, I said we have the only source of hope and help. At least if if you accept the truth of what Christianity says. Now, I mean, other people don't agree, but I believe that we have the objective source of hope and help that doesn't make me perfect, but I'm becoming, hopefully by God's grace, more like Christ, and so are all of us. We have been commissioned, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is, new, old is gone, the new has come. Now all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. What is reconciliation? You take a relationship of hostility and you turn it into one of peace and goodwill. Because we're sinful, we deserve God's wrath and we don't want people to die so we seek to reconcile them to God. Namely that God has been reconciling the world to himself, not counting our trespasses against us, and he has given us the word of reconciliation. For we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were entreating through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For God, he made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us. That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Now, all of us are walking away from God. And so anytime we step on people's toes when they say that you are a proud person, you're a selfish person, you're a critical person, you're a person who is living out a sexuality or a sexual identity that's contrary to God's word. Whoa, whoa, you can't talk to me like that. Well, the Bible says it's sin. And I must turn from my sin, I must repent in order to be saved. So, we're not singling out sin, but the revolution is pushing us to these things, so we must address it. And we must say, we proclaim liberty. I love the story of John chapter 4. And you can go to John chapter 8. Remember John chapter 4, Jesus at the woman at the well? Does God care about, does Jesus care about redeeming people who are messed up in their understanding of their sexuality? <laughs> Absolutely. Well, let me go talk to my husband. Uh, go call your husband. No, you don't have one husband. You've had four or five, and now you have somebody else you're living with. Oh, how did you know that? The woman caught in adultery. Jesus gets down and starts writing, and he says, He who is among you is without sin. Let him cast the first stone. Everybody starts to leave, and Jesus says, Go and 
you're just be fine. No. Go and sin no more. Did Jesus speak the truth? Yeah. Was he loving? Yeah. It's not loving to call sin anything other than sin because if I call sin something other than sin, then I only, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, I cont- our silence condemns people to hell. If you take the verse to its logical conclusion. But if we speak the truth in love, Jesus says, you shall know the truth, who is Jesus, and the truth shall set you free. That's the message that we have. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The moral revolution confronts us. Because if, if we were all honest, a lot of us over the course of our lives have struggled with our own sexuality, our own gender identity, our own humanity, or we know people in our very close sphere of influence who do. Or else we just feel the press that we must accept a morality that's completely contrary to the very truth of God's word that we embrace. And so it's real. And so if you're here this morning and you're an unbeliever, here's my suggestion, my thoughts, my word, is that Christians don't hate you. Now, some act very hatefully. I'm not going to deny that. Bad on them. But we love you enough to say, look, your path is headed heading you in a direction that's contrary to God's word. And so we want you to turn from that by God's grace and enjoy life in Christ. If you're a believer, I think we just need to pray that God would give us the courage to live out our sexuality and our identity as God intended it to be. Because we don't all do that. And we're going to hear more about that in the context of marriage and singleness as we go through the series. But we want us to exercise our responsibilities also to speak lovingly and to show the truth. As we uh, take time now to break bread and, and take the cup, it's the culmination, it's the basis for our own identity in Christ. That's our reminder that we're fallen people. It's our reminder that we needed a sacrifice in order to deliver us from our own sinful tendencies. And that none of us is any better than any other of us. We are just those who have been saved by grace and want nothing but others to be saved by grace as well. And so we break the bread and we share the cup knowing it's the payment for sin for all who would believe and praying that we would be an instrument that others would know and understand and come to know Christ, and that we would appreciate and live out fully who we are in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your love, your patience with us. I pray that you give us courage and compassion, a sensitivity and ability to speak truth and to show truth and show love. I thank you for your son Jesus who died on the cross to deliver all of us from the penalty and the power of sin in our lives, not making us superior to other people, but making us saved people. 
on the path of becoming more like Christ. Not there yet, but hopefully progressing. Give us grace and strength to show and share the love of Christ and to live it out in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name.